Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of season three of the Running Explained podcast. I am Elizabeth. I'm super excited that you are here because this week's episode is awesome. My guests this week are the doctors of running, well two, two of the doctors of running, Matt Klein and Nathan Brown. And we are talking about super shoes. What are super shoes, might you ask? Well, you are about to find out probably in more detail than you expected. If you are not familiar with the Doctors of Running, they are doing exceptional work in our space in terms of not only the knowledge they're providing from their experience as physical therapists who are runners, but also they're giving us so much information about shoes and training and injury prevention. Definitely worthwhile to follow them on the many channels that they inhabit, including Instagram, YouTube, they have a podcast. If you are not checking them out already, well, listen to this episode first, and then you're then you're gonna want to. I know that. So, without further ado, please welcome my guests, the Doctors of Running, Matt and Nathan. Nathan and Matt from the Doctors of Running, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you guys here. Thanks for having us. It's we've we're, we've been a fan of what you do for a long time, so it's kind of fun to meet you and be able to chat for a while. Yeah, really excited. So before we get started about, like, I cannot tell you how excited I am to talk to you guys about this today. Uh, I'm going to start where I start with all of my guests, and I want to know about you guys. I want to know, individually, how did you become a runner? And Matt, let's start with you. Got it. So I became a runner, ooh, it was a long time ago, um, in early high school, because I was a musician, and uh, for anybody that knows Portland Public Schools knows that we don't get the most funding So I was still trying to play violin in some kind of organized music thing for high school, and we didn't have an orchestra. So I was playing violin in the band, Um, and yes, I did actually march in a parade with a violin. No one could hear me. Um, I was usually practicing other things, but yeah, I did march in a a parade. Um, So I needed to find a way to do a gym program outside of school to still satisfy those credits, so I started running. And I started running. I was just talking with somebody about this the other day. I was... I started running like a half lap of the track at a time. That's all I could handle. And then full lap and then was doing laps, got really bored and then just started going crazy. And it got to the point where I was running for like an hour and a half, two hours every single day. What was going all over the place? Some crazy stints. So I finally got a stress fracture. My biology coach who was the high school cross country coach at the time was like, you're running how much? Like, did you, did you want to come and join cross country? And I'm like, what's cross country? This is like before I started my senior year. And then it just kind of took off from that where I started getting a little more organized and, you know, have run ever since then. I can imagine as an adult now, looking back to that, that coach was like, I found one (laughs) and his aerobic base is excellent. Yes. Unfortunately, his uh, resilience to speed training was so hot. So multiple IT bent injuries, which did motivate me to become a PT so that it fed into that going, how do I fix this and keep this obsession uh, ongoing? So your origin story in a nutshell. I love it. Nathan, how about you? Yeah, I, I didn't really start running until a little bit later. When I got to college, I was 
just looking for ways to stay healthy and take steps away from studying and all that kind of stuff. And my sister had recently ran a marathon and I was like, that's cool. My sister's a pretty cool person. So I started picking up running just kind of recreationally in college. Um, and that was in uh, kind of similar to Matt. There was parts of getting into running and also that like <clears throat> coincided with my education, my coursework that I was doing in my undergraduate that helped kind of field me towards physical therapy as a profession and then specializing into running. So started running then, and now I've just been, been running ever since I've never been super good at it, uh, quote unquote, or super competitive in any ways, but it's been a lot of fun and it's been a way to be healthy. And I like competition. It's like board games and stuff is great. And running gives me a little competition outage for even just against myself. So it's a really fun sport. So how did the Doctors of Running happen? How did that come together? This is a whole good... Nathan, do you want me to take this? You can start it. It's, it's okay. your baby. Yeah, it's it started in... it. Fragments of it started before this. Um, so in college, and even a little before that, because I was kind of... I was always been a very inquisitive person, asked way too many questions. I used to drive my coaches and everybody else nuts. And so when I started running and I was like, hey, I'm getting these injuries, like, let me look into this a little bit more. So I obviously started looking into footwear because it's the major tool that we use in running. And I started going, well, I'm hearing these things. This doesn't make sense. So I started working at running stores, trying to learn everything I could. And big thank you to Rob Finnegan and Dave Sobolisk uh, at FitRight Northwest, which no longer exists. Um, I got to learn all kinds of stuff, but had more questions. So while I was in college, Started talking to people. People like Pete Larson were nice enough from Run Blogger were nice to like respond back and had some thoughts and things I was learning. People were like you should share this. I'm like, nah, no one would listen to this. I'd be no. Why would I do that? So as I went to call or I went to PT school, I was no longer working in running stores. So all the um, the deals on shoes were starting to dry up. So. <laughs> I was still running 100 miles a week at that point. It was competitive, and I was burning through shoes. So I'm like, well, I'm burning through shoes. I might as well just write my thoughts up on it. And this started as Klein Runs DPT, my like second semesters of first year of PT school. And I was like, no one's ever going to read this. This is just my way to practice my thoughts and writing. And it did start because I wanted free shoes. Like I wanted to be like run blogger. <laughs> I wanted free stuff. Uh, I didn't want. And I was like, that's going to be so cool. And it just never. It just for so long it seemed like it was never going to happen then all of a sudden i won a pair of sketchers shoes at a race and reviewed it and sketchers reached out and they're like hey can we send you some stuff and i'm like this is not gonna last um and of course they kept doing it i kept reviewing stuff it kind of things kind of went up and down like this trying to do it by myself and then i was very lucky to meet uh some wonderful people nathan was one of the major ones where i was doing a fellowship program and we were in the same course with dr chris powers and I was talking about this stuff, and he was very knowledgeable, and I was really impressed. And I was like, hey, I got a question. Would you want to do this with me? And he's like, yeah, sure. I don't know what I'm getting into. And it just, <laughs> we kept doing it. And all credit to Nathan in terms of being able to reach out and his ability to speak to people and make connections, because that really is where things took off. And all of a sudden, we had Mizuno we were talking with, and it just kept going up and up. And now, just... I'm blown away by where we are in terms of the contacts we've had, the people we've got to meet. We've sat in on meetings with people that I used to like geek over. I'm like, oh, that person's so cool. They work here. And then we're sitting in a meeting doing like advisement on, on footwear development. And I'm like, so it's <laughs> it's been a really cool journey. And again, the whole purpose of this started as an educational tool because I had questions going, 
I don't understand what's I'm putting on my feet. I'm trying to learn about this. There's a lot of confusion. No, no offense to the the footwear marketers out there. I know I kind of rag on them all the time, but there's just it doesn't always match what the shoe feels like because people are so different. So the goal is as an educational platform to educate people about the art and the science of what they're putting on their feet because highly individual, and we want to help people with that. So that's what it's continued as. And you guys are such an like unbelievable resource. Mm-hmm. And somebody asked me, they're like, oh, can you start reviewing shoes? I was like, first of all, I don't want to. Second <laughs> of all, I could never do it as well as you guys do. And mm-hmm. so that's like, we all have our own lane. I'm like, I'm not even gonna try because I, I, I look on your site, like I just bought so like a couple of new pairs of shoes and I was like, I wonder what the doctors of running have to say about these, uh, these shoe models. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to be able to have that resource that is in, in as much as it can be an unbiased opinion from people who actually know what they're talking about. They're not trying to sell you shoes cause they're, you know, selling ad space in runner's world. They're not telling you these shoes are amazing even when they suck because they happen to have a deal with this one specific brand, you right. know, and I think be, be able like the a sheer amount of shoes that you have gotten to review and give your opinion on is just like, it's truly such an amazing resource. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I, I think for us, you know, the, the topic of bias comes up all the time in the shoe review game, you know, like there's there's a lot of different people. And I think what we try to do is exact a lot of what you exactly said is we try to use our background as physical therapists. We have lots of continued education in biomechanics and footwear um, and and foot science and kind of what's going on with injuries and prevention and just trying to break through some of the marketing hype that's brought into shoes. And Yes, admittedly, we probably contribute to the hype in some ways because we are talking about the shoe and that's like that's what they these companies want. But our goal in that conversation is to bring in who who might this shoe work well for, who might this shoe not work well for and why from both a clinical background and the what the research has to say about design elements of a shoe. So it's really fun to, to be able to do that. And hopefully the resource is what it's intended to be, you know, and that it can help some people figure out what what works best for them. And by the way, we like when Nathan says we talk about we the bias stuff, we talk about that all the time. It also comes with self-checking too, because mm-hmm. we're human beings. We're like, oh, I like this shoe or I hate this shoe. And it it can be challenging, but it's something we try to reflect, which is why it's kind of good that we'll often have multiple reviewers or you know have people that check and go, hey, can you just read over this really quick? And it's it is important because it's very easy. Bias is it's inherent, right? But it's something we really try to check on. And, you know, we warn companies going, if you send us a shoe, we're going to give you an honest opinion of it. Right. You know, if mm-hmm. it's if it's great, you know, we'll say it, but we're going to say who it might work for. If it's not good, we'll still try to find if there might be a population that might work for. But at the end of the day, there's a reason there's a section called recommendations on every review. So and that bias thing, I think is interesting. It just kind of like throwing this out into the world and I, what you guys do and kind of what I do. And I don't work with nearly as many brands um, as you do. But that I think it's important to acknowledge that bias can even exist, you know, kind of different, separate from the product you're reviewing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, to work with a brand who may just communicate, like you have a better communication relationship with them. Like even that can, you know, influence your opinion of the brand in a way that you'd be like, hey, like I really like working with this brand because their rep is super chill and awesome, but this other brand, their rep is like not as chill and awesome. And then say, is that affecting how I think about what I'm reviewing? 100%. It's it's funny that when we talk about this stuff, you know, both Nathan and I are in in postdoctoral programs right now and talking in, in the research world. 
there's bias everywhere and you can do your best to control it. But there are just some that you kind of have to accept and at least be aware of and be aware of how it might affect your results and then see if you can get better at just going, hey, can I control this better and better? So it is an ever evolving process. I don't I hope people don't think, oh, they've totally got this 100 percent. No, this is a a continually growing. It's we do this also because we get to grow from this and we learn just as much as listeners, viewers, readers do. So it's it's quite fun. It's also very challenging in a good yeah. way. What an exciting time to be doing what you're doing, though, because uh, to our topic today, we're talking about the rise of super shoes. Um, if you, Yes, and there's one pair. I have some of my own pairs behind me. I have both carbon and nylon plated shoes. I'm sure you guys have like all of them plus some. Yeah, They're around. This is super yeah, fun. So if you are listening to this episode, I would encourage you, if you're like, what are they talking about? Uh, you can now watch it on YouTube. We can you watch us hold up these shoes, point at them, talk at them. So we'll try to make this audio friendly, but if you want to see what we're talking about, go ahead and pop over to YouTube and watch the episode uh, with all three of us in our pretty faces. Um, so the rise of super shoes. Can somebody just fill us in? Like every topic I feel like on this show, let's start with some background information about what we're even talking about so we can level the playing field of knowledge before we dive into some of the more complex things we're talking about. What are we talking about when I say super shoes and where did they come from? Nathan, you want me to take this one or you want to take this? I'll kick it. I'll kick it off. So I think throughout the history of running, one of the sects of people are the ones that run want to run as fast as they possibly can. And so, like Matt said earlier, one of the main tools for us as runners is our shoes. And so throughout running history, the goal has been to create a shoe that allows you to perform at your top level. How can you design a shoe to be able to run as fast or as far as you can in the shortest amount of time? And throughout earlier than 2017, a lot of the strategy was to create as light of a shoe as possible with as little under your foot as possible that would still carry you through something like a marathon. And so you'd get these very low stacked and really lightweight shoes. Then there was a shoe company that kind of broke the mold with this and said, we're going to try it a very different way. And that was Nike. Everyone, or most people have heard of, of this shoe is the Nike Vaporfly 4%. And that was kind of the first quote unquote super shoe that came into existence. And what happened with that shoe is instead of just being really light through having a little bit of amount of foam and as little of an upper as possible, what they did is they found a foam compound that was extremely lightweight, extremely resilient. We'll go into, we'll probably get into foam stuff later. Um, and had certain shaping and stiffness that allowed the runner to have a lighter shoe on their foot. while it gave actually a little bit more back to the runner in terms of and quote unquote energy return, which is a whole other buzzword. And so super shoes, if we break them down into kind of like a definition, usually they have three components. Um, one is the type of foam and the amount of it. Two is the what's called longitudinal bending stiffness. So like the amount of stiffness in the shoe. A lot of times that's done through a carbon fiber plate. Um, And the third thing is the geometry. And so the shaping of the shoe. So I would say that's kind of like what is a super shoe is these very high stacked, but very high, high stacked, meaning lots of foam underneath your foot, very lightweight, relatively stiff and curved in a certain way to try to improve the running economy or ability to run as fast and far as you possibly can. And I want to add on to that, that for the, the listeners, that running economy really 
means efficiency. <clears throat> it does not necessarily mean speed. That the term and how they test this is what metabolically how how efficient are you? Are you saving energy? Are you able to maintain it? Are you able to maintain your pace for longer? That's what they're look, looking at, not necessarily all out speed. So it's an important differentiation. And it is a combination of those three factors that really make the shoe. There's a lot of companies, people, I think, kind of went the wrong direction when this shoe came out. There's a lot of companies, a lot of people that thought, oh, it's the carbon plate. And that's the term that's used most frequently. It's actually the term that really defines this group of shoes, albeit not necessarily correctly. The carbon plates that we discovered from research and uh, we got to shout out one of our, our good friends on here, Laura Healy, who did a really awesome study where she actually had the Nike Vaporfly cut the plate in half, left the, left the rest of the shoe, and the efficient, the economy was still the same in the shoe. So it's like, okay, it's not that the plates aren't important because we'd argue that the plates actually stabilize these super soft foams because if you just have the foam a lot of times, things aren't really that they're, they're, they might be soft, but they don't necessarily bounce because things are controlled. Um, we'll mention Dustin Jubert, who's done some very good research down in Texas, um, where he compared shoes like the Nike Invincible, which has this foam, and it was nowhere close to these, some of these racing shoes because you need all the components. So it's not just the plate. The plate seems to stabilize the foams and can maybe facilitate motion, but it's really the foam plus the plate plus the geometry and you've got to hope that you get that combination in a in a some manner that actually works and the problem is it might work for one person but it might not work for somebody else and i think that's where we might be getting a little lost so super shoes are super for some people but may not be a super for others yeah. and i i want to dive into like everything you guys just said individually so let's like put a put a pin in all of that and come on back but so yeah. i'm i'm holding up right now my very first pair of super shoes this is the nike i think this is the nike vaporfly next percent next percent next percent yeah. yeah um and i remember so <clears throat> this is my like elizabeth you I tend, I like a bargain. Let's put it that way. And uh, when I, you know, why do you think I started this website? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> free shoes. These weren't quite free, but this was the first generation uh, of of the shoe. And I was looking at, and I really wanted a pair. And I was like, I can't really justify. They're like they were like two hundred twenty five dollars at the time, and you know, I'd spend one hundred and fifty dollars on a pair of shoes. But this seemed just like a lot of money. So I wandered into a Nike outlet one year, oh, yeah. one day. This is probably. I don't know. It, th four four years ago at this point, they've been out for a, a, a long enough. Somebody had bought a pair, barely worn them, and returned them to the outlet, and they were like basically new. And I got them for a hundred and thirty dollars. Yes. That and back in, <laughs> and they're just still a deal these days. But um, Matt, what are you gonna say? Not I'm gonna free, reveal but. one of my secrets <laughs> that's gonna get ruined is that I am also a person I hate spending full price on things i occasionally will and the rest of the team makes fun of me because there's been two instances where i actually went all out and spent probably double what the shoe was worth on stock x just to get it on my feet and both the first time was actually for the shoe you're holding i managed to get a pair super early and um get a review out before anybody else which is great the second time was with the original adios pro which didn't work out so well because the original versions were not like the rest of them and it didn't work but i will say outlets awesome i'm gonna ruin this ebay is the other thing that i i hunt on and poor nathan and the rest of the team will suddenly find shoes that show up on their doorstep from random people and they're like 
Where is this? Oh, Matt found something on eBay in my size. And now Aren't you worried about counterfeits on eBay? It's happened once or twice. Yeah, but it's part of the part of the game, but eBay has gotten better about <laughs> yeah. reimbursing. So if yeah, if you guys are actually I think of the I own three pairs of the vapor flies and we'll talk about this too. I like the vapor flies. I don't like the alpha flies. I'm sure you guys mm. can probably tell me why. Um, <laughs> but I've gotten two of those three pairs at outlets. Yep. Um, so when I first put on this pair of shoes that I'm holding right here, this this first generation carbon plated shoe, two things struck me. It was very high, like the stack height. I felt like I was on yeah. platforms. And it was very, I call it marshmallowy. It was yeah. very soft. Um, and I'm used to it now, but I think back about the very first time I put these pair, this pair of shoes on, it was so foreign, because it was mm -hmm. so unlike anything that I had run in before. I wasn't even sure. I was like, is this, is this how it's supposed to feel? <laughs> right. And yes, apparently that was. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think. So, yeah, go, oh, go ahead. Because I want to talk about the foam, I think is where we head into this next. Because obviously the plate is important, but the foam is where it all started. And that marshmallow quality um, is is from the foam. Yeah, I think that there's, there's a couple to bring us all on the same page in terms of like terminology, I think there are two terms that are really helpful when it comes to foam and those are compliance and resilience. So when you step down or put pressure through a foam, the amount that that foam compresses under your foot is called compliance. Um, and then resilience refers to the term that when you relieve that pressure from the shoe, it's how much percentage of that compliance comes back. So if it went all, it, let's say it compressed three inches, and then it returned three inches, that would be 100% resilience. And the compliance would be, this isn't how the terms are actually used, but it would be three inches for the sake of the kind of conversation. And so what, they're what they found with these shoes when they went to a new foam compound, so the, Matt, I'll let you go into the types, um, yeah. but th they found that the properties within ZoomX foam, which is called PBAX foam, um, have a very high compliance combined with a very high resilience. And so that marshmallowy kind of feeling, and then when you start running, for me it feels almost like trampoline-like too, where it almost is like really bouncing off of your off of the ground. Um, that's due to those components of compliance and resilience. Um, Matt, what do you, maybe you could talk about like EVA versus, I don't yeah. know if that's a good place to go with this. That That is a good place because people need to realize that different foams have different properties. And we are now seeing some stuff start to blend. Like people are, so big stuff for the many, many years, the traditional foam that was in running shoes was EVA. Please, it's like ethyl, that don't Vinyl acetate. The full thing. There, yeah. yeah, there's a reason we call it EVA. So <laughs> EVA, and then there's also TPU. And the most common place that people will know TPU from is from the Adidas Boost. TPU was actually used previously, but then people found that it was too heavy. It could get a little firm. It lasted forever. The durability was phenomenal, but they went to EVA because it was lighter. Yeah, it wasn't as durable, but it was lighter and people seemed to like it more. The problem with those foams is there's, they tend to be kind of set in, as Nathan mentioned, the compliance and resiliency, at least until recently. So when a couple companies, Nike's not the only one that was experimenting with this, but Nike was the first one to kind of get it to the market. When they got this, what's called a PIBA foam out, PBAX is the company, although PBAX is typically what a lot of these different, they will put it as that name. Um, where they found this, like, as Nathan said, they were able to expand it and put it into different ways that 
it just feels so bouncy, but it's still insanely light. Like in the past, if you wanted a shoe that soft, it had to be a ton. Like Hoka had to have a ton of EVA foam underfoot and had to have sometimes a little thinner density. It would just compress, but it wasn't always very light. The original Hokas were pretty heavy, right? They're like 11 ounces, the original Bondies. But, you know, that's where the Piba foams went in a totally different direction. And they were doing studies. So Ian Hunter and Hoot Kimmer and all these, all these original studies that came out in 2019 when they finally got their hands on pairs of Nike Vaporflies found that the, the resiliency levels, the, the I don't want to say energy return because I'm trying to be very careful with that term. Was it, Nathan, was it energy return that they used? The percentage? Resilience was the big Let's thing. Use, yeah, yeah, resilience is the better term. Like that bounce, how much you got back. The, the EVA and the TPU were like in the 60s and low 70s and then the in terms of percentage of how much the foam bounced back, but the PIBA was like 85, 86, 87 percent. It was just like magnitudes above this. And they're like, oh, wow, this is really intense. These foams are very soft, but they're also still bouncing back and giving us this foam back. The crazy thing now is we're getting foams out there that are in the 90s, 95 percent. So we're getting there. So the challenge with that, I don't know if you want to go there, is yes, as you mentioned, you're like, you get that like baby deer feeling and you're just like, what am I putting my feet in? And what you have to realize is it's not just the shoe, it's your body. Because a shoe is basically the, the inner space between your body and the ground, right? It's like it translates things. As you get a softer shoe, it kind of impairs some of those senses, which isn't necessarily bad for everyone but you have to learn how to use these. It's like, okay, well, I can't feel the ground as much. Everything's compressing a lot. What else do I have to do? What do I have? How am I going to use this to get through my running gait? And so certain people seem to adapt really well, others maybe not. And so these are not magic tools, right? It's, these are very cool things. They have a lot of re like resiliency and they tend to bounce back a lot. But as you mentioned, you kind of got to get some, you have to get used to them, right? You're mm -hmm. like, is this supposed to be like this? It's because there's really never been anything on the market like it, except maybe one of those like bouncy houses things you went to as a kid, or maybe <laughs> you went to as an adult, I don't know. But yeah, you're just not used to putting that on as a shoe. I also think that it's important, you know, a Piba-based shoe or a foam is mm -hmm. not going to feel like another Piba-based shoe or foam. Like, you can make the same foam can have very different properties from each other. So you might have something like the Saucony Endorphin Pro, which has a certain type of PBAX foam. And then you might have the Next Percent from Nike. Right. And they, they have very different feelings to them because the yep. foam is created with different levels of resiliency and compliance. Um, right combined with the geometry and the stiffening agents right. in the shoe. So um, foam is a foam, but it can take a many different forms um, and look very different. Right. So the, the magic and the chemistry and some of the design elements is, is a very closely guarded secret for these companies because yeah. for the longest time, nobody really got close to what Nike was doing. And now people are catching up and they're definitely not going to share the details going, Oh, how did you do that? No, I'm not telling. Right. And so you can, like Nathan <laughs> said, you can have that foam, but how it's utilized and how it's designed varies significantly. And I think other companies are trying to catch up and I haven't, they haven't had a lot of companies using TPU and EVA have tried the, you know, using more expanded stuff or like nitrogen fused EVA where they kind of bubble it up and it's just not, the same. the same it seems like the P the piba foams in whatever form seem just seem to have better resiliency than any of the other stuff that we've seen so far 
that's truly fascinating. And if anybody wants to go down an even deeper rabbit hole and learn more about like what how they actually make these foams, that I encourage you to do that because it is really cool. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think actually one of the what you just said answered my question because from my personal experience, I my first ever shoe was this Nike one. And but every other shoe in my rotation at the time was a Saucony shoe. So when Saucony finally came out with their endorphin pro, I was like, oh hallelujah a Saucony version of my Nike shoe, put it on, bought it, put it on totally different yeah. shoe. Like if you, if you, if I hadn't known what this shoe was, I would never have pegged it as a high level performance plated mm. shoe. Right. And it's not that it, it has worked very well for a lot of people, right? The oh, absolutely. New, I, have you tried the version three yet? I, ha- oh yes, I have. It did yeah. not work for me. I think their ah. shoe, their foot person, it's, yeah. Cup, past couple models of Saucony's have not worked for my foot. Fit-wise, mainly? Yeah. 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 That'll happen. And that'll happen. That's why it's, it's so good. There's so many different options now, so you can find something that works for you. But again, the original Endorphin Pro was different. Yes, it was, you know, it was using a Piba foam, but it really didn't have the same bounce. It was more of this rolling rockered shoe, but the geometry was what really took over of those three components. And yeah, it worked for a lot of people that didn't tend to like that bounce or like unstable feeling in the Vaporfly. But if you look at the economy measurements overall, yeah, the Vaporfly was still a little bit ahead. It just, you know, different strokes for different folks. So let's talk. So we have these three elements. We have the foam, we have the plate, we have the geometry. Let's talk about the plate. Because I think this, like you said, a lot of people think the performance benefit, the performance boost solely comes from the plate. Oh, carbon plate, that must be like wearing a pogo stick on my feet. And you're saying that's not the role that the plate plays. Nathan, you mind if I take this? Yeah, you go. So ironically, some of the early research on that came from the shoe you were just holding up. And actually, did I see a Saucony Endorphin Speed behind you as well? Yeah, I have two versions of the Speed. I have the originals and I have the threes. So some of the original research um, from McClode et al., which actually involved one of Saucony's elite athletes, Jared Ward, who has the benefit of being both elite athlete and a PhD as well. Um, The difference between the Saucony Endorphin Pro and the Speed came from the research when they found that so that this pro has this very stiff carbon plate the speed has a a little bit still stiff but a little bit more flexible nylon plate that came about because they realized that just because you put a stiffer super stiff plate in a shoe doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone and that's because different people respond to different levels of stiffnesses and there's an optimal amount that each person tends to benefit from the super geeky side has to do with the fact that the angle of the plate and the flexibility has to line up with your big toe joint and all that kind of stuff. Um, but not every stiffness works for each person. And so as they kind of started diving deeper, you got, again, Laura Healy studied when they cut the plate and they're like, oh, the economy didn't change. It's the plate is important in these foams because, as you mentioned, that baby deer feeling, they are very unstable, just the foam by itself. So you do need a little help to stabilize and direct some of those forces. And so, yes, the plates are important, but if you just have a plate in a shoe with like EVA, yeah, it might feel more snappy that in some of the early evidence was like, you might get like a 1% at max performance improvement if the plate actually lines up with you, but it's not actually necessarily gonna make the shoe faster because that's not 
the plate doesn't add to the resiliency. It adds to the stiffness and you've got to figure out, can you use that stiffness? Do you have the straight strength to bend that plate and then have it again, like put like bounce, not bounce, but like rebound, rebound forward, I guess is the term. And again, that, that will break down usually some inside evidence that the plate actually tends to break down a little quicker than some of the foams do just because of how you bend it. Um, that's not confirmed. That's just some thoughts from some industry insiders who mentioned that. But again, it's it's really there to stabilize the foam and if done right to facilitate motion. That's why some of the, the plates that have a curve in them tend to do a lot better than the really flat plates or the low ones because it's facilitating how you roll through the gate cycle. I, I think maybe it, one little piece of background information that we kind of like skipped over quickly is that the first Nike shoe is called the Nike 4%. And mm-hmm. it was called the 4% because this study that was done by Hookheimer found that the average running economy benefit was 4% in runners who were running pretty quickly. <laughs> they were running at sub-maximal efforts, but it was a pretty, pretty effortful run. And it was 4% talented runners who were running very fast. And so they found the average of those, the benefit was 4%. Some people benefited more than 4%. Some people had a worsening in running economy. If you look at the whole spread of that study, but like, let's just take that 4% for what it is. And then Matt kind of referenced only 1% at max of that benefit is seemed to be attributed to the plate itself. So you're really not getting all of that much benefit from it, which from a slightly nerdy sidestep, a shoe that came out last year um, was the Asics Super Blast. And it's a shoe that worked for a lot of us and it, it costs a lot of money. I think value is a big conversation when it comes to super shoes. And like, I have a whole shtick on like, do we talk too much about super shoes? Even though I'm in this, like I, I review them and stuff. I think that there's this idea that we all need a super shoe and we don't, <laughs> but, um, but I think, so the super blast came out, it costs, I think $220, but there's no carbon plate and people's issue with the price was that there's no carbon plate. But what you have is a lot of stack of their Piba based foam or the, it's a nylon, nylon foam. They don't tell us exactly what it is. Um, but the shoe that also has this is the Metaspeed Sky, which in this one of the studies that compared all the different super shoes, it performed second best uh, across the study um, to the Alpha Fly. And so it was right up there. So you're really getting the meat and potatoes of the shoe. And because of how much stack there is, and they put a stiffening agent through an, a stiffer EVA, you still get a relatively stiff shoe. So, you know, the carbon plate isn't all that special, I think is where it comes down to. Um, you need, you need the stability of the foam to be able to handle, you know, you have to be strong enough to handle what the shoe has for you. And the plate helps people handle foams that they normally wouldn't be able to handle because it creates it a little bit more stable surface. Um, but I think they're so interesting. And people are expanding beyond the whole carbon fiber. I know that was the sexy term, but more companies are, you know, Mizuno's usually using the carbon, like mixed with fiberglass plates and, The expansion. So again, remember the plates, regardless of what they are, their function is to stiffen the the just to stiffen up the shoe. And companies are starting to figure out there's other ways you can do that. The Super Blast is a great example. There's no plate, but that I could have sworn there was something in there because that thing is so stiff. It's not going to bend. But again, it's how do you stabilize these soft foams? That's an interesting bit of background. I think that illuminates you know. 
where these came from, obviously, when we talk about shoe companies, a lot of the technology that they develop, I assume they hope to bring to mass market, but it sounds like they were initially just trying to like mess around and see what they could come up with and then marketed towards at first these elite runners. I mean, I remember when, you know, before that all came out and we were looking at the proto prototypes of the gram, whatever it was, and it was like, yeah. what are these? Oh my God, right. what what are these? Um, and then of course now you go to a race and like 90% of the population is wearing a super shoe on right. there. I just, I ran Chicago last year and I looked around and I was like, cha-ching, 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 yep. cha-ching. <laughs> and I was wearing a pair too, right? Yep, I, mean, I, I did too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but one of the questions I get, and I think this is a, a reasonable time to ask it before we move on, is that sometimes people will ask me if it's worth it for them to buy a shoe like this if they are not quote unquote fast. That's um, a, is it, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate question, I think. And the first question I is, well, are they comfortable? You know, this, that, the other. Do you want them? Like, right. if they're not causing you problems, there's no reason you can't buy them. But then to somebody say, will I receive the same benefit if I'm running an 11-minute mile versus a five-and-a-half-minute mile? And thanks to Dustin Jubert or Professor Jubert down in Texas, we found that the answer is often no. Because a lot of the studies were done on those, as Nathan mentioned, a lot of very high-level athletes. I think it was Nathan Quick, if I'm wrong, a lot of them were like 31, 30-minute 10K runners mm-hmm. that this was being tested on, which that's mm-hmm. that's quite fast. That's running five, if not sub-five-minute mile for 10K. What was followed up with with Dustin Jubert was he did a, a, a study looking at runners running at slower paces, eight, nine, ten minute pace, and they found that the benefit was again at max like one percent. So you know with the one percent benefit, that starts to beg the question, is it really worth it? And so I would argue that there are some I don't want to scare people. There are some inherent risks to these shoes, right? As you mentioned, they're a little unstable. You gotta learn how to use them. They don't give you free energy, right? You got to learn how to like control that motion. So for runners running at other at slower paces, I don't want people to think, no, you can't run in them. If they're comfortable, like I love this shoe and I'm comfortable running. I've, I've, you know, I'm training for this race and I've been comfortable getting to the distance. I'm good. Go for it. But if you're somebody who's going, you know, I really like my Asics Nimbus or I really like my Saucony Ride or I really like this traditional daily training shoe which, by the way, are starting to get some of these elements, so you may not be able to escape this. Um, if you like that, you're doing well, and you're like, I'm, you know, I'm happy with this. You don't have to upgrade because, again, the the benefit isn't as big as when you're running fast. And so, I think for a lot of people, where you might have a time goal, but a lot of a lot of it is finishing a race. Uh, we often, and Nathan, correct me if I'm wrong. We often tell people find the shoe that's most comfortable. If something really works for you. That's great. When you start, you know, thinking a lot, a little bit more about times and starting to get a little faster, you can consider some of this stuff. But especially when it comes to health and even injury prevention, it's kind of sticking with what works because these are not protective against injury. That is for sure. We don't have any new data yet, but we know that since these have come out, injury rates have not changed. Yeah, I think I think there's kind of two things. One. A PR for somebody who's going from a five-hour marathon to a four-hour and 45-minute marathon is just as important as somebody going yep. from a two-and-a-half-hour marathon to be an Olympic qualifying time. Like, I, I'm fully on board with that because they're 
both just as valuable and just as much part of that runner's journey. Um, I think the question does it, but the question kind of remains the same of like, what sort of benefit am I going to get from this? If I do want to shoot for that PR and it's really important for me, um, kind of, is this shoe worth it? And the athletes that I work with through my coaching and through like the clinic that I work in for PT, um, my biggest conversation is like your fastest time will come when you're healthy. So like whatever we need to do to make you healthy, that is like priority numero uno. And then anything else that flows from there is like bonus. And so the conversation for me is not what kind of shoe can we get you in to make you as fast as possible? It's like, how can we make you a very healthy and resilient runner yourself? And then what sort of tools do we have to to accomplish the goal? And Matt hit the studies where there's a kind of degradation in the amount of running economy benefit you get from them. And I think especially considering what race, like 1% running economy doesn't mean you're gonna run 1% faster in in your time. It's not, you kinda, it's it's not that, uh, equa- that equation doesn't kind of flow out like that. Yeah, it's, these aren't these smaller. aren't performance improvements when we do the studies. This is a prefer- you know running economy. So you have you know runners hooked up to lab equipment measuring you know gas yes. exchange and they're doing lactate level like all this stuff. You know we're not saying oh you're going to run the Nike didn't say you're going to run four percent faster. It'll say your running economy will improve by four percent. And I think that's the kind of the I want to say that the marketing magic is yes. maybe that wasn't communicated as um, openly as it could have been, but I understand why. <laughs> and then it got taken out of context, like, oh, you're going to be 4% faster or 8% faster. Hey, it's all about the plate. And it's kind of got, it went off on these tangential things. You're like, no, that's that's not how that works, unfortunately. And if it's weird, if you don't sleep the night before, if you don't fuel during the race or anything, it's weird. You still don't perform better, even if you're wearing these shoes. It's <laughs> yeah. odd. Still trying to figure it out. Well, I want to talk about the geometry because I think that's really where I wanted to talk about. You've mentioned a couple times being able to use the shoe, right? The shoe is, it's kind of like a wild horse, right? You got to learn how to make it work for you. And you said, you know, you're not getting free energy. You're not getting free energy from the shoe. You are getting out what you put in. You're just getting a little bit more back than you would in another shoe. Like it doesn't give you something you don't already have access to. So I think that's when we're talking about who benefits from these shoes. It's these athletes. And again, you can have athletes of the same caliber who have different, slightly different biomechanics who are going to respond differently to the same pair of shoes, right? No matter, Mm -hmm. even if they're all running five minutes per mile. And so we're entering in this really murky water of, yeah, this isn't going to work for everybody, even people who, who it should work for. And there are many, many reasons why. I love the analogy of the wild horse. I think that is the best way to explain these um, that I have ever heard. Like try, just trying to tame that wild horse. I think, again, different people. Yeah, you mentioned this is perfect. People can be running the exact same pace how they accomplish that could be night and day, right? We are, and there is really no perfect way to do that, which we, the nineties was by the way, when all that studies on like how do elite runners run and how, what's the best. And it all ended because they couldn't figure anything out. They're like, well, this person runs super fast and they do it this way. This person's running the exact same world record pace and they do it completely different there. It just seems like people are able to, or the elite runners have different strategies they use to get there. You know, that's where things get a little murky with we started talking about running form and there's like, a, is there a perfect running form? And the answer is, we don't know. 
there doesn't seem like it because there's different ways that you accomplish getting locomotion and getting forwards. If you've watched Ju- the elite pack of any marathon, some of you're yeah. like, how are they even moving forward? Much less <laughs> right. that Sometimes pace. you're like, and, you know, I just finished talking with the patients on why core and trunk stability is so important. And then they go, but this person's running four, uh, 30 for a marathon and they're doing this. And I'm like, I give up, forget it. This is <laughs> no, but the answer is it just depends on a lot of different factors. So how you hit the ground, that geometry is going to vary with each person. So the thing with these shoes, though, is with these very tall amounts of foam, the very stiff parts under the shoe or at the plate, it's going to change how you get over the ground normally if you and we're not trying to promote the barefoot stuff certain people do well with that certain people don't but if you're walking or running barefoot you have a couple mechanisms in your foot that naturally kind of keep you forward right you've got a curved heel you've got the your ankle which rolls forwards and then you've got these toe joints that normally extend so you can roll off them it's these very nice efficient mechanisms called the rockers of the uh, foot and ankle and so each one of these helps maintain forward momentum if you have a super stiff shoe and a tall one at that, it kind of modifies how they work or sometimes even takes them away. So you have to make sure the geometry of the shoe actually matches what that person needs. So a lot of these shoes will have, you know, these these big things we talk about called rockers where you have this curved heel and the curved forefoot and the bottom seems to be rockered. You've got to be able to maintain this stuff. And where you put each one of those, the angle that you're at, where it starts, can totally depend. And then you've now got shoes like the Wave Rebellion Pro that has these kind of extra cutouts and the heel seems like it's missing. And that is working for certain people. And it's like it depends on where you land, how you roll. But again, the geometry is really important as part of that. We I don't remember the number. I know the foams typically have... It's like it's kind of like the plate. The foams tend to have the largest impact on on economy, but they still need the plate and geometry to make sure everything moves forward the right way. Because if not, you're just running on a very soft, stiff board, and you're like, "Oh, this that doesn't feel like I was expecting it to." So it helps facilitate motion forward and gets into the how the rockers and your these naturally efficient mechanisms of the foot and ankle work. Yeah, and I think, some. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna just add really quickly that the. The geometry Matt talked about forefoot rockers. That obviously these super shoes aren't the only place that they exist. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a good amount of footwear research out on what's the effect of a stiff forefoot rocker on our biomechanics and the amount of demand that it puts on our body. And so one of the best it's from I think 2017. Sobani is the researcher. It's Sobani. And, yeah. And and they they looked at a certain angle of the forefoot rocker, which again is, is this curved area in the front of the shoe. And they asked how much work does the calf musculature need to do when a rocker exists? And so when they have a certain stiffness and a certain angle and a certain apex, so where that angle starts, they found that there was a decrease in the amount of workload that the calf has to do, which for running is really important because when it looks, when you look at workload for all the different musculature in your, in your body, especially the lower extremity, the calf is by far and away doing the most work for our running. And so you, if you create a shoe with a geometry that takes away workload from you and puts it quote unquote on the shoe, not completely, but it, it replaces some of the work that you do and takes it away from that high demand on our calves that's where some of that benefit comes in and that's why geometry is important what doesn't happen though is that the energy goes away we typically need to use some other stuff 
I was what I was going to ask you. I know my physics, and you can't just take something away and not put it somewhere else, especially when it comes to biomechanics. So if it's being taken off the calf, where does that workload end up? So based on the original research for rockers and some of this stuff, it tends to shift upward. So yes, these tend, not always, to reduce the amount of work. Let me be very careful that I'm using some of these terms. It tends to reduce the amount of, of effort needed and workload at things like the calves and some of the foot and ankle muscles just because they can't function. <laughs> well, like, not that they can't function. They just don't have to work as hard. It's all there for them. you still got to control that. So that workload tends to get shifted up to the knee and the hip. So you've got to still, you know, despite the super soft shoes, you've got to be able to shock as well and stabilize more. You, you don't push off with the calf as much. You've got to push off somewhere else. That usually requires a little more workload from hamstring and glute. So anecdotally, you will see that athletes will typically tend to experience some more hamstring soreness and hamstring issues with this just because they're having to pull and use stuff different. So that baby deer feeling you were, you were experiencing is going, your body's trying to figure out, well, well, I can't use this thing. So what else do I have to use to try to get forwards? I also know for me personally, like when I'm, when I'm racing in a pair of super shoes, um, I have to be hyper aware of mm-hmm. my ankle strength during that training cycle um, or else I'm going to be in real pain during my race. <laughs> yeah. And that, <laughs> when you waggled those shoes at me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when you say unstable. ankle, you mean the outsides of your ankle, the muscles Correct. that span down the outside, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And that's because, so I said most of the time it decreases the work, at least front to back, usually side to side because these foams are so soft and the stack height so the the height of the sole is so soft you have to work harder to control this stuff so we've seen that yes and again not enough not any research on this yet but anecdotally you'll still get people going you told me that this was going to decrease the work on my calf and you to have an achilles problem and i'm like that's because the achilles is sensitive to a lot of extra motion side to side right or hey my post hip these other muscles that help control the side to side motion got irritated it's like there's no such thing as free energy. They're super soft and there's more yeah. compression, which means there's now more motion. You really have to work on your balance, your ankle stability to control that. It's the, again, the wild horse analogy is great, right? It might be able to take you for a ride, but you better make sure you can control it or you're going to get, that's going to terrify people by saying it's going to be shoe's going to throw you off. <laughs> well, in the running world, throwing you off is that you hurt yourself. Yeah. Right. That's fair. Yeah. So it is a tool and it does not make you invincible despite that's why I get a no no offense to Nike, but like when they called their shoe the invincible, I was like, it's not gonna make you invincible. I promise. It's it's tool, right? All these shoes that we've come up with, it sounds terrible, but injury rates have not changed over years and years. It's been consistently high. Running's a high impact for sport, right? So, you know, you're all you're doing is just shifting things around. And that's you still need to pay attention to ankle stability to your strength to making sure you don't overtrain right that's it's it's you can't ignore the body these are not not invincible tools i think the marketing has been so good at industry-wide in yep. you know because every shoe company is now trying to sell their own version or multiple versions of these types of shoes um you must see this more than i do but trying to er, needing to convince people that these are not daily trainers these are not shoes that you wear every day, even if you rotate multiple pairs. 
I think I've, I've almost given up in some points. <laughs> just like, you know, if it's, it's plenty of people do. Like, I have friends of mine that are like triathletes that this is the only shoe they wear, right? They have their Alpha Flies and Nike Vapor Flies, and that's what they wear, and they've been fine. That's, you know, except when they try to try any other non Vapor Fly, they're like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I'm like, well, you got used to that, so now you ruined everything else. But these, that's not how these were designed for. They were designed at these faster paces for the this kind of this group, right? Where yeah, other people might benefit from them, but it's a tool, and there's certain tools you wouldn't want to use every day. You know, I don't have this car, and I would never buy this car. But if I had like some kind of race car, I'm not gonna go take that to get groceries. First of all, I'm paranoid that somebody's gonna run a grocery cart into it, and I don't need to be able to accelerate zero to sixty in half a second to go down the street or to go to the, sh- the store like it's that's 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 really not necessary and if you don't have the driving abilities you're just going to wrap that car around a pole it's like this is not so but if you're on a racetrack and you're experienced and you got you're a very good driver yeah that makes total sense but most of us are going to do fine with a honda fit right that's that's what i think yeah. so it it again it it really comes down to the person but some people are going to do what they're going to do and we can just make suggestions but again how unstable they are, how they te- what they kind of tend to facilitate with mechanics. You got to make sure you're ready for that and ask, do you want to actually experience that all the time? I think something else we've learned through the minimalist movement that swept through maybe 15 or so years ago is, you know, research is slow, right? It takes time. So we found out about what happened during the minimalist movement about three years ago <laughs> or like five years ago. So it's it's like it takes time. But there's some very, I think it all has to do, oh, using the word all is a scary thing, but much of it has to do with what sort of loading changes and demands are put on different structures of your body and is your body ready to handle those things. So when it comes to the minimalist movement, a lot of people wanted to move there because there are documented things that happen to your feet, which could be beneficial, like hypertrophy of the muscles and strength in the feet and blah, blah, blah. There's lots of potential good things. However, when you switch to something that changes the demand on your body that it's not ready for, you get, as we saw with that movement, very high incidence of stress reactions and stress fractures in the feet and in the tibia, just because people's bodies weren't ready for the impact forces, which are different than the forces you get in a maximalist shoe. Not that it takes away stress, it just changes what is being stressed. So that's why I think clinically we're seeing things like hip flexor and hamstring strains. We don't have documentation of that yet from a uh, research perspective because it's going to take time um, to be able to get that sort of data. But I think if you are someone who decides to train full-time in something like this, you have to recognize that your body is going to adapt to that surface. So if you choose to do that for years, you might not get hurt. However, if you no longer train in something like that, you're gonna. it's like going to a minimalist shoe for you because your body has now adapted to a new surface that you're running on. And so I think that's the big part of the consideration is if someone decides to do that, you just have to recognize what you're doing to your body long-term, which in my, it wouldn't be my recommendation, but it's not necessarily bad unless it becomes a problem because you can't transition out of something like that um, because your body is adapting to the forces that are put upon it. And, and it could put you in a position where you can't handle stuff you used to be able to handle. Yeah. And that I rag against the, you know, trendy stuff. And, you know, one of the terms that I 
I think is pretty, pretty outdated at this point. We talk about muscle confusion, right? And I'm going somewhere with this, don't worry. We say like, oh, you should do different kinds of, of exercises so you can confuse your muscles and that way they never know what's coming next. And like, that's not really how we adapt to anything. Um, but that actually is not necessarily a bad principle to think about. We think about the things that we're doing with our shoes is that, or, you know, we want to do things slightly differently often enough so that we don't find ourselves in this rut of this is all I'm capable of doing. Um, and I see this a lot with runners and I understand why they find something that feels safe or works for them. And that's all they do. Yeah. Whether that's doing like all of their training around a track for endurance runners. Have you run 10 miles around a track? I haven't, <laughs> but I know people who do. I would not encourage you to do so. Please don't. Yeah. Mind numbing. <laughs> Don't All power to people to do the ultras around the track. I, w- oh. I don't know how people do that. But to, to, to find these grooves and say, this is the only pair of shoes I can wear. This is the only thing I can run on. This is, you know, to find these very safe spaces. And I understand this talk about the illusion of control, which is like an entirely separate podcast episode. Hmm. But this this is what that is, right? This is saying you you can't just stay in the most comfortable space in your training because it's actually not good for you. Right. And I think something that's been found... From a shoe perspective, there aren't many things, there's not a lot of research that shows that shoes can decrease injury. There's been one that has, <laughs> um, and that was looking at shoe rotations as a viable way to decrease injury. And and it's because of what you were just talking about is potentially, they don't know for sure, but the ver- running is so repetitive and you get the same stress over and over and over and over and over. And your, your body's tissues need to be able to handle that. However, if you have... So the study did it, whereas the primary shoe had to be less than 59% of the time spent running was the definition of a shoe rotation. And so if you have two pairs of shoes that you're rotating between that are different, that allows your body to get just a slightly different stimulus. And so that slightly different stimulus will stress some tissues slightly more and other tissues slightly less. And then when you switch shoes, that profile of loading can change. And so it's not necessarily, like you said, it's not necessarily like muscle confusion, but it is loading profiles and the amount of stress and strain that these tissues have to go through and gives when then when that tissue isn't being stressed as much, it has more time to recover. So it's kind of this mini recovery, micro recovery that can happen through a shoe rotation. Um, and it was a, I, we should also say this study was retrospective in nature, which means you can't like perfectly apply everything, but it does give some idea and gives us a picture into how we could use shoes as tools and not just getting so comfortable with one thing. Um, knowing also that having enough capital on the front end to buy two pairs of shoes isn't feasible for everybody. Like, I right. think that's a very true thing and, um, it's not a silver bullet either. Yeah, we do understand that even though we are we are based on the evidence that having more than one pair of shoe being different can be helpful and reduce and may reduce injuries in in with certain individuals. That said, it may not be feasible with everyone. So we understand, hey, if you you all you can afford is one shoe, totally understand. And please remember these things aren't these magic bullets, right? You still got to think about smart training, not overtraining, that kind of stuff. It is interesting though, that, that those comments have been made, but people ask us all the time, like, hey, what shoe's going to keep me healthy? I'm like, shoes don't prevent injuries. They cause There's them. not a single <laughs> shoe that's ever been found to prevent injuries. That's not a thing. Well, we've got this far for preventing injuries is strength training and then having a shoe rotation may do it. But outside of that, there's a lot of other factors. It's not and just appropriate periodized training. I mean, to be honest, yeah. if there was a shoe that prevented injuries, 
they would have marketed it 10 times as much as they marketed the Vaporflies. Like when those right. came out, I, all I heard about was the Nike Vaporflies. If they found a shoe that prevented injuries, that would be the only thing any of us would be talking right. about for a year. <laughs> right. Yep. Yep. So you guys have tried a whole bunch of different pairs of these types of shoes. Do you have any broad brush kind of impressions about, well, uh, let me ask you, I want to know what you guys personally like. You're like my favorite pair, but patterns that you've seen in which brand or model tends to be more appropriate for a certain type of runner, or really is like, you got to go in and try it on and go for a run. That is a very, very good question. And you can be anecdotal. I'm not looking for, re- you don't need to cite anything. It's okay. <laughs> there's, the problem is there's nothing to cite. Yeah, That's the challenge with that question. That's a good question. I, you know, I'll, it's easy to start with what I like. So when I, you know, we have the, we have this luxury of testing all of them, right? So we've had a, a bunch of them. And the one that I raced my most recent marathon in was the Endorphin Pro 2. Um, and right now, if I were to be, why racing, do you like it? I want to know yeah. why do you like it? Yeah. So for me, I running in the Vaporfly for me feels so, I just feel unstable in it where I get to 10, 13, 15 miles and I'm feeling my ankles feel tired. And so I just wasn't fit enough to, to feel comfortable in them. Um, and for the endorphin pro, the, the plate combination with the foam, that's much firmer. I felt like I just felt safe on the platform and that I would be able to not have to worry about it and not be afraid that at mile 24 things would fall apart because of the shoe. I just wanted something that I felt like really comfortable in. So I, I think that the, for me, the, the higher drop higher static drop. So that's measured statically. So it's eight millimeter drop that works well with my mechanics versus something like, um, like the alpha fly, which is only four millimeter drop or the Metaspeed sky, which is only five millimeter drop with the way that I land. I felt like I was trying to climb out of those shoes and I almost felt like my calves had to work extra something like this. I just felt like it just kept rolling me forward. So, and I think that has to do with how I how I load my shoes and the way that I land, um, I think that that was what led me down that road. But it was mostly just a feeling of safety and like eff- just felt more effortless. Um, the geometry of the rocker probably matches my toe off. There's not a perfect like science of type of runner with type of um, super shoe, but that's the one that I that I went with uh, for my most recent marathon. That I mean, I I, I want to kind of point out something that you said there like you put it on like you felt like it was kind of effortless like obviously running a marathon is never effortless but the <laughs> shoe the shoe was helping not not hurting and so and I'm sure you give so much counsel about finding the perfect shoe for you but really that is what it, if you if somebody said I love this shoe you need to try it it's going to change your life and you put it on you're like I don't think this shoe works for me but this person said it take the shoe off and return yep. it 100%. like it doesn't have to work for you no matter what your best friend said Shoes really are tools and each tool is going to work very differently for each person. And sometimes, even if you have similar biomechanics, it also might work differently because there are other factors that go into it. Like, how does the shoe fit? How is it comfortable? How does, do you like what you're feeling underfoot? And you may not like that. So it really, it does come down to, you kind of got to go try some of this stuff out because you're really Mm -hmm. not going to know until you put it on your foot. 
and run around the store. Don't just stand yeah. up and go, wow, this feels great. It's like, no, you have to run because it's going to change as soon as you do that. Yes. Yeah, Walking in vapor flies and running in vapor flies are two very different experiences. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't, don't, don't judge it by these. how you walk in it. Uh, I, not I, did, shoes. I did not like standing in the Adios Pro 2. I was like, this thing's the oh, worst. Yeah. And then I ran in it and I was like, I ran my best five mile race in that shoe because it feels so different standing yeah. or walking versus running. That's a big, that's a big deal. And I would say if you are going, if you're choosing to go invest in one of these shoes that costs a lot of money, there are plenty of places that have amazing return policies because they care for runners. So they give like 90 day return policies, meaning go run in it as much as you want. And if you genuinely don't like it, we will like take it back. Um, there are places that do that. So I would, that's my recommendation is go try some on, find one that you run in the store in that you like, and then buy it, make sure they have a good return policy and take advantage of it because it's a big, it's a big purchase. And I think that the store, a lot, some stores get that. Mm -hmm. Matt, what what are you currently favoring for a super shoe? Yeah, it, my my go-to right now would be the Saucony Endorphin Pro Three. Um, there's a yeah, I'm curious. There's there's a couple reasons why it tends to work for my mechanics. First of all, this shoe is is crazy compared to the last version. We have talked with Saucony; they've promised us the foam is the same, but I think just the larger stack. I don't know, that's a whole different conversation. Um, it tends to work really well for me for for a couple reasons. One. For people that have listened or watched Dr. Johnny, you know I talk about some of the stable components. So while it is super soft, it's not a stability shoe. There's some elements that just make it work a little better for my mechanics. So having a little bit wider in the midfoot being spread out, some sidewalls that kind of tend to keep, help me guide forward a little bit more is why I tend to gravitate toward this shoe. The other reason is that I, you know, having raced in college, tend to have that kind of like spike mindset where I want something a little more snug. So for me, this it, I still have enough room, but it kind of snugs down on me in a way that I feel secure and it disappears off my foot. Not everybody likes that snug feeling though. Some people need a little bit more room. So that's kind of what's working for me, but I will never assume, as you mentioned, I'm never gonna assume, I like this, everybody else should like it. I'm gonna go, this shoe is really soft and bouncy. It took me probably 20 miles to get used to that. And I was like, what, what is this? It does tend to, some of these elements do work for my mechanics and my foot. It might not work very well for others, right? I tend to have very strong hips and knees. I need to work on my ankles. This tends to shift work further up that way. So if you have some hip and knee issues, this may or may not be something that works for you, right? It's super bouncy and soft. If you like a little bit firmer, it might not work for you, right? So there's these different elements that go, just because I like it, doesn't mean everybody else's and I'd encourage people to just not unless you know your mechanics are like mine which I I'm sorry if they are um I'm just kidding uh but you gotta you gotta go try stuff on just because even as we found there's there's some shoes people like oh I run I train in this shoe which super shoe would I like and I was like we can it's it's a shot in the dark Mm because again how you're gonna react when you put the shoe on who knows there's people who think these are firm and you're like yeah well in but. case case in point was your experience with getting the first Endorphin Pro because you're That's like oh I trained example. in Saucony and I now I want the yeah. racing shoe and it just didn't work out for you in the same it way. Worked. It Here's the thing for me. I mean I think so. This is where when I people say if I want to dive into super shoes, especially my clients that work with one on one, they're like let's talk about super shoes. And I say hey you know what, start with the pair that you're 
the train your daily trainer makes yeah. because they're probably going to fit your foot whether you yeah. like them or not is a different issue but right. the first part is like does it fit yeah <laughs> they yeah. are more likely to fit if it comes from the company that makes the shoe that you run in every other day of the week yeah. so like start there but you don't have to love it and that's where i really you know i when i got it's not to say that the pros the endorphin pros and i it's funny i love the speeds i love mm. every version of the speeds and i don't huh. like the pros yeah. they but the pros fit me just fine I just don't like them that much. And so, so those are two different things that we're talking yes. about. I would say, just, yeah, I didn't, I didn't say this yet. Cause I said, I ran my last marathon in the pro twos. If I had to go run a marathon today, I would run mine in the speed three or, um, actually in an Adidas daily trainer that I'm running in the Audi zero SL. It's a, it's a EVA not super shoe. trainer, not a super shoe. I'm just, I'm just in a place where I'm not, I don't know. I'm not trying to bust out anything crazy. And if I had to go run something, it would probably be in one of those two things right now. I'm a little bit too in love with the speed threes. Like they're, <laughs> they're, they're featuring a little bit too much in my daily lineup. <laughs> That's fine. They're so good. I love the new plate that they put in for yeah, the wings, uh, Cause the yeah. first two I couldn't do the third one that they widened it a little bit and then put the new plate in there. I I've been in love with it too. So it's working really well. No judgment. Yeah. So actually something that one of you said reminded me of, of a question I wanted to ask, because I get this question, I mean, you might get it a lot. Stability shoes, like performance stability shoes, do they exist? Can I buy a plated super shoe for a stability foot? Matt, this is your baby. Yeah. You should talk about it. You, you can. It's been, it's a challenge is that stability, how we define stability has been evolving very quickly. So there's a big pushback with the minimalist move going, oh, you don't need stability, like your foot can adapt. And certain people actually do, right? We know the reason we know this and the people that tend to need it are those that have a history of any kind of stability related issues. So posterior tib issues, anterior tib issues, some kind of Achilles problems, st stuff that's related to excessive motion side to side, be it supination, pronation, which again, just describe motions. Those are not bad. Those are not pathologies. Um, it is a little challenging for people that have stability issues to, to, to find some of these. For me, the Endorphin Pro 3 tends to work, but it's so soft that that can still be a challenge if people have instability in the hip. Um, we were lucky enough to work with Saucony um, and help and with the Saucony Tempest, which is not a plated shoe. There's still some flexibility here, but it is lighter and it offers an, kind of a lightweight option for people that might need stability in either direction. It's not the lightest shoe. It's not plated, but it just, it's an all, nice alternative for people to go, you know what? I've trained in something like the Keanu or a high stability shoe. And I do want something faster, but I just don't have the move, the muscular control to take some of these shoes to the distance that I might want. So to answer your question, it's going to depend on the person. There are some shoes that actually might work well. The Adios Pro 3 is one that they widen stuff out and it's so stiff. It's actually worked very well for people, even though it's not technically a stability shoe, but it will depend on where you might need a little bit of assistance. So can people with stability needs run these shoes? Yes, it's going to depend on how long and the actual shoe and whether it's fitting with them. And that's why, you know, we talk about guidance and stuff like that. And it, I sound like a broken record when I'm talking about, oh, there's a sidewall here. There's a plate. You know, it, it is possible. Just figure you have to figure out what element that the shoe has is or is not going to work for you. So there's not a lot of pure there, there does not exist a super stability shoe. 
That well, does not exist yet. Also, I mean, one of the features of these types of shoes is that they are incredibly light. And when you start mm-hmm. adding in stability elements, you are adding weight. Yep, frequently, yeah. And you pick up any stability shoe and, you know, it's going to be heavier than the neutral counterpart from that same mm-hmm. model. So it's like we kind of run up against the 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 benefit of one of the benefits of the shoe is the weight and then you start adding stability elements on you lose some of that benefit yeah i think Very it's cool. more important to find the thing that keeps you healthy and that in those right. scenarios if if that's where somebody's at where a certain shoe if they go and run in a shoe that doesn't have those stability elements and they're getting hurt every time then it's not even worth the conversation in my head. It, it's, it, but if you're one of those people who's kind of on the edge, can dabble with a couple different things. I, the ones that Matt mentioned, I think are are good. Um, I think that with the Tempest too, it has the Power Run PB foam in yep. there, so you get a lot of the same like underfoot feel as like the Speed Three. It's just not as snappy. Um, I think that the other one that's not per definition part of the super shoe category that we already talked about is the super blast it's a very wide platform a stiffer sole and has sidewalls so it has a lot of those platform characteristics of um, of a super shoe and a stable shoe and we call them stable neutral shoes at doctors of running where they don't have formal stability elements but they have shaping and elements that just help keep it a little bit more structured and this is i would say this is a shoe that would fall into that category as well without having the carbon fiber plate but it's very light and has the has their mainline foam for their racers. So, I think that goes back to and Nathan just touched on this really well. That again, it's not the shoes are not going to help you finish the race. You can have this quote unquote fastest shoe, but if you only get through half the race and you can't finish, what what was the point? Yeah. So you got to find what keeps you healthy and helps you helps you not the shoe helps you move as healthy and quick as comfortable for you that can get you to the finish line and get you through a season or a training cycle healthy. And that's that's the thing is this stuff won't necessarily promise that. And explicitly they haven't, so. Correct. No, they have not <laughs> yeah, at all. I think the I, other, okay. one more shoe really fast is the Puma Deviate Nitro, the first version of that. I wanna try those so badly. <laughs> I. I got eBay. sent the eBay. Tracksmith uh, collab, and it's just, it's beautiful, too. But what's nice about it, has this shoe has a lot more ground feel. We haven't talked about that kind of, like, subjective concept, but this one feels like you're more connected with the ground than some of the other ones out there. So although it's not the widest platform or anything, it, it doesn't feel as high and wobbly, and it is a little bit lower stack, but it's a really nice shoe. Obviously, Molly did fine in it for the Olympics. She did okay. Um, she did okay. She- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, two questions I want to ask as we're wrapping up here. Um, without revealing any proprietary secrets or violating any NDAs, is there any technology that you are excited that's coming down the pipe and what the companies that you might work with are tinkering with? Nathan, can, can we talk about that shoe or not yet? Uh, it depends on what's, when this episode is released, so it's probably okay. safer to not. <laughs> okay, yeah, don't don't get yourselves in trouble. <laughs> okay, you can it. be very vague, too. I'll be very vague. I think the fact that companies are continuing... Yes, geometries... I mean, this, this shoe's already out, so this kind of stuff was really cool. It doesn't necessarily work for everybody, but just with not the, me. what people... And what shoe yeah, is that, the black and the, white? This is the Mizuno Wave Rebellion Pro. It looks um, so cool. Just what they're doing, some of the cutouts. That's going to work well for some people, not so well for others. I think the fact that while we had the initial the the initial P 
Piba foams and some of that stuff that were like really cool and made some big changes, companies are still starting to experiment. And I mentioned that, you know, the original resiliency measures for the Vaporfly were like 85, 87%. We've got companies that are messing with stuff that's now above 95% and above. So that's what I think I'm really excited about is to see what these companies do now with these foams. But under, I think they have a better understanding going, well, if this is super unstable, we're not going to be able to, nobody's going to be able to use this. So it's, I still think it's the combination of factors, but seeing what they do with the foams and how they control them is what I'm most fascinated with in terms of what, what's going to be coming. Yeah. And I, I think I'm excited too about, there's conversations going on and it's a, it's an easy question to pull out from the research, like the McLeod study that saw that different people did better with different types of stiffness. And I think there are shoe companies who have awesome research labs that don't tell us anything, but do a lot of research to develop their shoes. Like they're doing stuff to figure out what is it about certain types of runners that helps them run more quickly or not. And I think that as that gets fleshed out to some extent, um, I'm excited to see kind of where that uh, comes on. But I know that those are conversations that are happening is how do we tune a shoe to different speeds or to different um, landing patterns or whatever. So I, I do think that those are interesting things that we might see pop up at some point. Yeah, like this year, next year, where are we, uh, 2023? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we have even that much information. It's just, I we're- I think we do, yeah. No. Yeah. We know the conversations happening. are. We know the conversations are happening. We know that even on that, like ASICS was trying that with like the whole stride versus cadence thing. Um, with the Metaspeed Edge and the Metaspeed Sky. And so we know these conversations are happening. When they'll be ready, that, no idea. That's a great question, but we, we're we not hiding stuff. We just legitimately have no idea. <laughs> There's some fun shoes coming out this year, though, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> All right, so actually I lied. I had three more questions, so one down. My second question, I forgot to slot this in early in our conversation because you mentioned it early about the, the plate degrading. Mm-hmm. We used when the shoe when these shoes first start coming out, they basically said if you look at them wrong, they're gonna disintegrate. Wear them for a few miles as possible. How long does a pair of super shoes actually last? I think I think one thing there's a really uh, we have our own podcast that we interviewed Jeff Burns for, and he went really in depth on on this topic and a couple other ones. So that could be worth like hearing his thoughts on this because he or you should have him on here because he's he's just really fun to talk to. Um, ready for a two and a half hour episode. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> he's awesome. Rich Roll he style. Awesome. We'll be here all day. Yeah, he is awesome. But one of the things that they talked about. So I think one of the confusing terms is resilience because resilience sometimes can make it sound like um, durability, but that's not what resilience refers towards. Uh, resilience is again, how much the foam returns to its normal state. The durability is how long does that resilience stay? And with, when you're looking just like in a lab at P-backs or PIBA foams, though the, the durability of that resilience is actually higher than EVA shoes. Um, and so that's kind of a crazy thing. Doesn't mean the shoe is going to necessarily last longer because of other elements of the shoe, but from a foam perspective, it should maintain its properties longer than the properties of something like EVA. And that logically makes sense because the structure, molecular structure of the foam is more organized and like that's why it has the properties it does, which makes sense that it lasts longer. So, um that's it's not meaning the shoe's going to last longer, but there are other factors. Matt, what do you want to add to that question? Just no matter how super it is, doesn't mean I'm going to still rip, I'm not going to rip the heel off. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the, the thing with these is, yes, so the, the durability of the foams 
is it tends to be higher in terms of the fact that like the resilience stuff like that but you have to factor in other things like how do you hit the ground are you going to shred that sole so i've had certain shoes that last much longer than trainers for me but i've had other ones that i will blow through in like 30 miles which has happened a couple times so again is every you know i wouldn't say that these are i gotta be careful with that you're gonna have to be a little careful because you've added other elements beyond what we really understand with durability like there's been durability studies with more traditional shoes eva stuff like that we really don't know with this and so some of the older stuff was you you might need to change your so there's some evidence that suggests that all running shoes or this was done years ago before these foams that eva shoes all break down at 100 miles after that how long the shoe lasts for you is how well can you compensate and hold on so some people might be able to get a thousand other people are going to get like 150 right so that's that whole like three to 500 mile durability thing really varies a lot so a lot of people might get that but not everyone with these shoes the fact that they are so soft this is theoretical you just have to realize that yes the foam might still be hanging around but not everybody's going to be able to maintain it because you're going to start wearing your unique signature into the shoe and the problem is the more you wear it right the more it's going to exacerbate whatever odd movement patterns you have so just be a little cautious where the sole still might be intact. That doesn't mean the shoe is necessarily not broken down. I'm sure. I'm sure as a coach, you have recommendations for your your athletes in terms of how much to run in a shoe before a race that you're going to race in and all that stuff. I think for us at Docs of Running, we typically recommend getting about 50 miles in, even on like a super shoe, and including maybe two long runs or something like that to get miles on it. Make sure that your body's agreeing with the shoe over the over a longer period of time that's typically kind of how we go and then in terms of lifetime i think from an anecdotal perspective i'm seeing like 150 to 200 miles before um those shoes kind of like die out both for me and like the athletes that i work with so um but that's i mean it's going to vary so much but i i think that there's more life on these than we thought there was. It's not like you're going to get one 5K or marathon out of these things and then you're done. You can probably get a really good amount of races out of these shoes. Um, multiple marathons, multiple, multiple half marathons, and even more 5 and 10Ks. So um, I think there's a, there's a lot of life in them in comparison to what we used to think. Mm-hmm. And my last question, as we are like running out the clock on our recording, I'm going to I'm going to hit you with a a big question, but I think it's probably something that you likely already have formed opinions on. And this is a question about where is the line when it comes to technology and like, I'll I'll phrase it in the question I typically get on Instagram. Using these types of shoes is cheating. Mm. Um, And like, I think this is probably a, a hugely philosophical, you know, debate and gray area. It can be this, could be that. You know, where do you come down on the role that technology plays in enhancing our performance in a sport and versus when it comes to crossing a line where it's basically cheating? That's a, I, I think it's everyone's going to have probably a slightly different opinion on this. So I'm, curi- I'm actually curious what your answer is on that, too. Um, I remember when I was in high school in the band, our band instructor asked us, like, there's this app that plays the trumpet. Like, is that considered playing the trumpet? And 
everyone was like, no, you're not creating the sound. He's like, well, you have to like control the sound. You have to be able to press the buttons. You have to, and he just kind of kept pushing that idea of there's a lot still on the person creating the sound behind this app. Um, is, so then when is an, is an electric guitar guitar? Cause the amp is what's making the music for you, all this kind of stuff and you're distorting sounds and all that kind of thing. And I think for me, where I come down on this is that somewhere where this shoe technology kind of comes into into light where I think currently with what we're seeing, the runner still, you, you can't just go run a marathon because you know, you've, you know, never ran a marathon, but, or, or going out for a 10 mile run, but you can put on this shoe and run, run a marathon. You're gonna have to train just as much to be able to run a marathon. And so I don't think that anything we're seeing currently is coming into a realm of cheating, especially if it's, if it's genuinely accessible to people, I do think price is prohibited, prohibitive, um, for a lot of folks. And I, that is something that I struggle with where, um, but I think that the nature of our sport is one in which like most people aren't going out there to make money. Like most people are going out in a, in a race for themselves or for something, for some kind of cause that they're like pushing forward through their training and maybe raising money for something. And I think that's, what's the beauty of our sport. So I think, it's for for ninety nine percent of runners. Like, who cares what the shoe technology has that's in it? And you know, even like the Super Blast is technically not legal because of the stack height um, and that kind of thing for for that. But it's not legal for people who want to be Olympic qualifiers, right? So, um, or win certain sanctioned races. So I I'm I haven't seen anything close to cheating yet. But if they give it wheels and a motor, um, I would I would call those shoes cheating. <laughs> I would I would totally go with Nathan on this is that you're you're still again these shoes don't provide free energy that's the thing it's not pushing you more it's all about and again it's not universal for everyone some people do well some people don't what's what's been interesting and I've seen that comment going oh it's cheating and so a lot of older older individuals who you know back in my day you know I wonder what I could have run with that and it's like I don't know if you would have run any faster because there yes we are seeing some improvements in time but that takes away from the progressions of our understanding of training of nutrition of other components that have really all pushed that and if you know you look at the American elite American women are doing phenomenal right across the board just tr- pulling down records but not everybody is the American guys really haven't are not running any faster than they did 15 20 years ago in fact they actually might be running a little slower so wrong direction yeah so it's like yeah. is everybody getting better yet yeah, you know some are some are not right there's also other factors that are going into this. so i don't think this is cheating um especially because there's it's a tool and there's some very important things you have to work on for this tool i just like it because for the first time in years we're seeing just a crazy amount of development footwear and people are asking better questions and i like that they're asking what is actually happening? Is this actually making us faster? Which sounds like, no, for some people it might allow to be able to push more, but it's not necessarily making you faster. Um, But it's the fact that we're seeing such crazy development at such an exciting time. Yeah, go for it. Right. Cause before that, all we did was just try to make the shoes lighter and it wasn't very exciting. Now we've got something to be really excited about. So I say, yeah, go for it. And as Nathan mentioned, as soon as you, when you start putting like motors or like wheels on them, like that, then in, that's, that's different. But, and that, that might make that, that's a pretty extreme example. Cause I, I do think there's things that happened in like swimming, right. Where they went back on, I think that's probably the most like 
and and cycling's another conversation in terms of technology. This is the only technology runners have, so these right. shoes. So I don't know. What's your opinion on that one? I'm curious. Yeah, yeah I mean, cur- curious to hear from you. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, and I think the thing that really, because I'll I will be fully honest. When this came out, and I. Well, I was like, well, the carbon plate essentially acts as a spring, which is like not how the shoe works, as we've just talked about for the past hour. Now you change. know. Now, now you we know. all know, right? But <laughs> yeah. when when the shoes first came out and they were touting the benefits of the carbon plate, because I think it was a lot more accessible to market this as a carbon plate shoe rather than like we found about foam and the foam is amazing, people. And then I thought this seems <laughs> this seems like a bridge too far, right? This seems like we are using the carbon plate to sling, and we know that's not how the shoe works. And then reading about the, some of the research that we have been able to do in the last five years or so, what has really struck me is, as we've been mentioning throughout the entirety of this episode, is the extreme variation in response rates between athletes yes. of the same yes. caliber to the same shoe. And for me, this is no different than an athlete who res- who has a specific metabolic profile where they are able to clear lactate more efficiently just right. because genetically they were born that way or they have more higher mitochondrial density or they actually perform extremely well in warm conditions where another athlete might not. So this is, I think, one of many things that can influence your performance. Um, I like to wear these shoes; they're fun. I love that, like you, the, the technology, the development, the money we're putting into this thing is amazing. But it's not like we're seeing like there has still haven't been ten guys under two hours, right? We're not no. seeing these records. Yes, they're falling right. more recently. I would argue that's more about the fact that people got a break from racing to actually train for without racing for a couple of years because of COVID. Yeah. Right. Totally. So it's nothing to do with the shoes. It's everything to do with the fact that nobody, people didn't have to go out and pay their bills by racing five, six times a year, and they could just work on their training. So it's like all one of the things that we went through in my head at the very beginning of this episode. We're talking about the research and just the sheer quantity of variables that there are when it talks about trying to quantify this thing. It's such a Herculean task to look at a runner and say. You, the person with all of these variables going on that are changing at any given time and then point to this one as the cause, like that's practically impossible. And I know Mm -hmm. that the researchers out there are doing the best they can to control for a lot of these variables, but you know, it's not like the the shoes are helping. They're not the difference maker when it comes to what we've seen in the last five years. And that's all I really need to see to convince me of what you know you guys are saying as well right it's the same thing we tend to have a very singular focus right now people are focusing on the plate and then they're like oh wait it's the whole shoe before that they were focusing on foot strike before that it was the, <laughs> this and that and it's like you got to think of all the factors i think the biggest thing another reason is you know what a lot of people have fun. these are fun right a lot of people have fun is and if having a pair of these makes it more fun to get out and be more active and run or do whatever activity you want why not, right? Just be aware of the fact that it's not going to make you invincible, that you still have to be smart with your body in terms of training and other variables like that. But if it makes it fun, it makes it more enjoyable to get out there and go run or race or whatever, that's fine. Why? No, don't, don't complain about it, right? It's, these are cool. I think, I think it's something that you said that resonates really heavily with me is that if it was really cheating, the first step would be that everyone got better across yeah. the board. I think that, that that is a really nice starting spot. It's like, I have a three and a five year old at home, so I'm playing a lot of trouble these days. Like if I got to, if, if I had the rule where I could 
hit the button six times every single one turn, <clears throat> I'd clearly be cheating, right? But but and everyone would get everyone would finish trouble more quickly. Does anyone play Trouble anymore? Do you guys know? Do no. you guys remember I Trouble? I know it's been a while. Oh no! I know trouble. <laughs> Trouble's like the game where you have there's you have four pegs and there's four colors and you hit a pop like a popper that spins the dice for you and you have to make it around and back home. Yes. Yeah. Oh it's, yeah. it's like little kid game. But it, yeah, if you got a bunch of rolls to everybody's one, that's that's obviously going to make you better. Shoes aren't obviously making everybody better right now, and I think that's a big point that you made. And then we can point to anything where it's like advances in sport nutrition. We're saying that we should we should limit our carbohydrate intake because it's you know shown yes. to improve performance. It's like that's ridiculous. Yeah. And then you can Your say, body's well, how is limit it? Trust me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or when or you know that that I don't think people realize because this is a you know we've talked specifically about endurance running, but you know the the state of the art tracks are fast surfaces. Those are yep. faster surfaces to run on than roads. Like where do we draw the line there? Right. So yep. it's like these are all simply. We're talking about little, little add-ups here and there. It really does come down to the person, the athlete themselves. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Oh, my gosh. You guys, this is fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. I hope this isn't the last time that I see you lurking around my show. Yeah, Um, we'll come back anytime. Awesome. So for those people who have not yet paused the episode, followed you on all your channels, and come back to finish the episode, tell us how people can get in touch with what you're doing. Social media, website, podcast, tell us about it. Yeah, so we have a we have a lot of outlets. Um, we're thankful for Bach who handles all of those, but he, uh, so I would say the, the easiest ways to follow us are through our Instagram, which is at Doctors of Running. Um, and then we have Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all following the same handle. Um, and we also have a TikTok. There's a couple other things out there, but I would say our primary is through our Instagram and our Twitter um, is our primary social outlets. Our website has the hub of all of our educational materials for footwear science, rehabilitation, and all of our all of our shoe reviews. That's doctorsofrunning.com. And then our podcast is the Doctors of Running podcast. Um, we are in year two of, of doing that podcast, and it's been a lot of fun. I would say when you go to our website, you're going to see a bunch of like shoe reviews and stuff. When you come to our podcast, you're going to actually hear what we do for 95% of our day, because most of our day working as physical therapists is with people and injuries and rehabilitation and training and all that. Shoes are like such a small piece of the pie, but it's that's where we get that outlet. So if you're looking for more of that stuff from like a PT perspective, that's the podcast, the shoe stuff and the, all the articles we write are on the website. Awesome. That's going to be linked in the show notes so people can find and follow you and get all the shoe content that I don't provide from you who knows exactly what you're doing. <laughs> you guys actually get so. And like I said, you know, somebody asked me about doing uh well you do shoe reviews and i have to say matt i think you i had the opposite experience of you i was like i'm not buying all those shoes just so i can review them for strangers on the internet so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's fair right it's yeah. a lot of work right so i, I wanted to, i again i'm a professor so i like sharing stuff like i want others to know this but it, it takes a lot of work it does. which you do with all your other i mean you're yeah. a gold mine of resource for everything yes. so have to draw the line somewhere she reviews yeah. for, for <laughs> Awesome. Thank you guys so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. We had a blast. Thanks for having us. It was fun. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.